This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. The big news in Toronto yesterday, the Auditor General's report came down. It was revealed that uh, according to her figures, uh, the Wynn government in uh, Ontario is understating the true deficit. Now, you may remember their budget numbers when uh, Finance Minister Charles Souza presented their budget just a couple of weeks ago, and he projected about a $6.7 billion deficit, which raised a lot of eyebrows. Well, the Auditor General's gone over the numbers and said, no, 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 it's $11.7 billion. And, of course, the government's immediate reaction was, no, 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 your numbers are wrong. And back and forth it goes. Joining us to talk about this is Alan Carter, of course, co-anchor of Global News at 530 and 6 and Queen's Park Bureau Chief. Alan, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Uh, I'm sorry I can't talk now, Bill. Now you mentioned the taxes, I have to go to <laughs> Numbers, numbers, numbers. Listen, my, my eyes glaze over as soon as I, anybody, an accountant or a bookkeeper, starts going over this stuff. So I don't know how you know, Bonnie Lissick gets through this stuff or the, or the government does too, but basically there seems to be a real conflict here about how you tabulate this stuff. Yeah, I think you really have to understand the backstory on this one. I mean, the headlines are certainly crabby, as you pointed out. I mean, the, the auditor saying yesterday that the deficit is going to be 75% higher than the government had indicated. And, and it certainly would indicate some kind of malfeasance in trying to present the books. But there's more to it than that. There are essentially, this boils down to two issues, two main issues. One is the Fair Hydro Plan. Mm-hmm. Now, you know the Fair Hydro Plan, that's the thing that's cutting our uh, hydro bills on average by about 25%. That's not because we're actually paying less for electricity. We're just not paying the full freight. We're paying less than it actually costs, and the extra is all being collected together in a giant debt balloon over at Ontario Power Generation. And because it's at Ontario Power Generation, it, it, it's a kind of a the, – the government changed some of the accounting rules so that they basically could keep that debt off the government books. And the auditor says that that debt should be on the books. That's the one issue. The other issue is with government pension plans. Governments, not only this one, but many governments across this country and governments in the past have counted government pensions as an asset on the plus side of the ledger. But the auditor has decided that since that money is not actually accessible to the government, it really shouldn't count as an asset. And that is really what's tweaking the books here. And it is, at the end of the day, an accounting dispute that we should point out that neither the NDP nor the PCs are willing to say that they would change things and take the auditor's position on those pension assets. That's the interesting twist to this whole thing, because uh, you know they're going to use this report, and, and they're going to be lobbing grenades at the government, saying, see, these guys don't know how to spend money, and they're out of control, et cetera, et cetera. We know the rhetoric that's going to come out during the election campaign. But I can even remember, because this is not the first time uh, a budget that uh, that the Auditor General has actually slapped the government's wrist for this idea about claiming those as assets. I mean, she did it with the last one. And, and you're right, the opposition parties were strangely silent about that. Well, and keep in mind that what this is, this report, you have to go back to 2003 to understand what this report is. You'll recall that when the liberals first won power under Dalton McGinty, they promised the moon, and they, Mr. McGinty signed a form that said he wasn't going to raise any taxes or anything, and then they got into power, and like, oh my goodness, we, we don't have three billions less than we thought, or there was a, a giant discrepancy. So Mr. Uh, McGinty ordered that prior to any election, the government of the day must submit a basically a, a, 
a spreadsheet of the finances of the government, and it has to be signed off by the auditor. So essentially, we can't have this situation where after June 7th, whoever wins says, well, I know I promised you everything, but you can't have it because the, the books are crooked. Um, and, and so that's where this comes from. But the actual dispute itself, there are many uh, accountants and high-level uh, people who understand this stuff a lot better than I do across the country that said the, say the auditor is wrong on the pension asset. And, and therein lies the problem. Uh, and uh, we've had all sorts of uh, innuendo as a result of this, some suggesting that this is a personal thing between the Auditor General and the Premier. I don't know if there's any, any truth to that or even any evidence of that. But she's dug her heels in on this. And I guess the thing that, that kind of adds fuel to the fire as far as the government's concerned, Alan, is when Ms. Lissick took over this job, uh, I guess at, at, at that point, she was allowing this to happen, and it was upon reflection. I think she said yesterday, well, we had our staff look into it, and, and that, that's why the change of policy occurred, uh, which sounds a little shaky, I guess, and, that, and that's why the government's saying, wait a second, you can't change the rules halfway through the game. Well, I mean, you know, I, I have some sympathy for the government position here, and, and you, you, you detail it quite well. That is precisely what happened. It, it, it's as if your finances, you kept saying, well... Here's my books, and here's my path to balance, and and you know I'm going to pay off this credit card, and then the credit card company comes in and says, no, 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 you can't count your car, you can't count your car as an asset, you owe us way more money, um, and so that there's that sense of that, that it's not quite fair, and the, the you know the the personal thing with the auditor and the government goes there, it's well documented, and she was outraged when the government uh, changed her powers over advertising and her oversight over advertising. And there's a fair bit of territorial protectionism going on here. And so there's a political story behind the headlines that you're seeing that uh, it's unfortunate for the liberals, as you say, because, you know, yesterday the conservatives were just hammering, and this morning Doug Ford will be hammering them again on on these deficit numbers. But the reality is, especially Mr. Ford, he has no policy at all. He has not said whether he would take the auditor's accounting methods, whether he would keep the fair hydro plan. Under Mr. Brown, his predecessor, they were going to keep both. And, and there's the problem. I mean, the opposition parties, the NDP, of course, have released a semblance of a platform. And, a, and, and on, on first blush, it looked pretty interesting. But now some of the uh, experts have peeled back some of the layers and said, that you know, the numbers just don't add up here. And all we're getting from the PCs at this point are platitudes. I mean, it's, it's awfully difficult to compare theirs to what the government's doing right now because they don't have anything as of yet. Well, they don't have anything that's fully costed yet. Yeah, exactly. It seems, it seems like we're we're just going to go plank by plank by plank throughout the next couple of weeks with Doug Ford sort of, you know, announcing this thing and that thing. And but yet, does it all add up? And the, one of the major questions for the conservatives that they have yet to answer in a substantive way is: Will they run a deficit in the first year? Remember, Patrick Brown promised a deficit in his mm-hmm. first year if he were to win government, and obviously both the Liberals and the NDP are promising deficit spending. So a pox on all their houses. But at the end of the day, we've got to select something here, and that, therein lies the frustration. I know Mr. Ford's immediate response uh, when somebody did quiz him about uh, about this bookkeeping situation. He said he would bring in an outside auditor uh, to pass judgment on this. But what what... What credibility do they have when it comes to what the Auditor General is doing? I mean, I, I, we can probably bring in five different accountants here, Alan, and get five different opinions. But the government has already done that. They've, they've sent it to a panel to, to study the issue, to try and resolve the thing, and the panel cited on the side of the government, and yet it 
doesn't hasn't changed a thing. There's only one thing that's going to change the situation in Ontario, and that's when Miss Lissick's term as auditor is up, which is not for a while. Not for a while. It's coming up, I believe, another year. Yeah. Uh, so they're stuck with this system. They're stuck with this as long as she's going to be calling the shots here. Because, as you mentioned, even the panel can't order the Auditor General to change the, the, the circumstance. No, she's an independent officer of the legislature. She can't be told what... There's a bunch of things that's weird about her office. She can't be told what to do. And none of her... She's not subject to FOI, which is a real problem, I think, for a number of us in the press who are trying to chase this story to get behind... Get, you know, to get really inside of what's going on here, where, where is this animosity coming from? You cannot FOI any documents from the auditor, and she will block documents from being released. But, and therein lies part of the problem. This is all about transparency or lack of transparency in a situation like this. But can you trace it back, Alan, to, to the liberals trying to cut her own lawn here and, and simply say, we're going to try to cut back on, on some of the things you're allowed to do? I mean, is that what created this this circumstance between the two of them? It certainly seems that way from, you know, from being able to read the tea leaves and, like I said, not having the inside information because it's not accessible to the press and it's not transparent. But when the, when the liberals announced that they were going to change the advertising rules, Ms. Lissick held a, an extraordinary press conference where she complained about her office being turned into a rubber stamp. And that seemed to really set off the, uh, uh, this fight that has just escalated I mean, and there's been other things, too. You'll recall that when uh, Mr. Shirelli was Minister of Energy, um, the Ms. Lissick report put a huge report on the energy sector out, and, and Mr. Shirelli suggested that it might have been, the, the entire sector might have been too complicated for the auditor, which is pretty outrageous thing to suggest. Yeah, I, the condescension there is not going to win you any friends. I guess that's the circumstance. Uh, and 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 by the way, I, I I know we're talking about you know this this one element of this, but as you rightly pointed out right at the beginning of our conversation, uh, I mean the liberals are not without blame here. I mean the hydro fund has been a sore point with the auditor general ever since they announced this plan to quote unquote reduce rates. It's it's really kind of a glorified situation of what Ernie Eves tried to do a few years ago, isn't it? Simply saying we're going to lower this stuff, but all it did is pile it up onto the debt. Now we just we paid that debt, of course, on our hydro bills. Uh, they've done a little bookkeeping magic, as you say, to keep it off their books for now, uh, but it's not off our books. No, and I, I think that you do have to think of these two issues somewhat separately. The Fair Hydro Plan is, I mean, it is an odd piece of legislation and the kind of trickery and accountant uh, maneuvering that they have done to be able to change the rules, to be able to keep the money off the books and be able to structure it the way that they have. There are a lot of questions that I think are legitimately need to be asked. And the, and the NDP, to their credit, have said that we will cancel it. We will cancel the Fair Hydro Plan. Now, they somehow claim they're going to still come up with 30% savings in, in hydro prices. How? They haven't been able to say, whereas the conservatives previously under Mr. Brown said, look, the fair hydro plan's already in play. It's too far down the river to stop it. We're going to keep we're going to stay with it, because keep in mind, if you're promising to cancel the fair hydro plan like the conservative, like the NDP are, you're promising to raise everybody's hydro by 25 percent. 
uh, and then somehow think that you're going to cut it another way. Yeah, well, I, when I asked Andrea Horvath about that a few weeks ago when she was here in studio, Alan, her, her, her answer, her first answer to this was, well, we're going to buy back all those shares that uh, that this government sold off. And I said, how are you going to do that? I said, you can't order people to sell them back to you. Or, or and how are you going to, how are you going to, move somebody in, in to in that direction unless you offer a high premium and that and how are you gonna and that's it the books don't add up there to say okay we're gonna buy all those back and that way rates will go down well we owned the shares before and the rates didn't go down yeah I, I it's a bit of a stretch to equate the sale of the utility with the actual price because the two things are not linked I know that exactly the NDP, the NDP love to try and conflate those two and say that those two things are linked. And there is some evidence that there is a linkage between the two, but it's not a direct link. And it's not like saying, we buy back the utility, suddenly your prices go down. That's not the way it works. Well, and again, if I were a buyer, and I wasn't, but if I bought some of those shares at $100 a share, uh, unless she's going to offer me a huge, huge premium so I can make a a few bucks off this, I'm not going to sell them back. Why would I? And it's funny, you know, this promise of buyback, the the, the NDP have gotten a lot of traction on the complaints about the sale of Hydro One, and it's been an unpopular move in the province. But at the same time, I don't have the sense that people are clamoring to spend money to buy it back. I think people realize that to do that is, as the liberals have said, is essentially just to send a whole lot of money to Bay Street. Well, and you're right. I don't know that that's a front-burner issue for an awful lot of people. I think, uh, you know, rightly or wrongly, uh, the government at that time simply said, the bottom line here is what's that bottom line on their hydro bills? And if we can lower that, a lot of people are going to be happy. They don't really care about the math. And I don't know that they care a whole lot about the math here and, and this, this, this argument that's going on uh, between the, the Auditor General and this government because, uh, you know, again, those are big numbers and those are the headlines right now, but I don't think people really get too deeply into this to find out exactly what those numbers mean. Unfortunately not. I mean, I, I think it's just another big drip in the, you know, the unpopularity dripping of the Liberals and, and as we move closer to Election Day, I mean, you you just you wonder what if anything will stop these the momentum of Mr. Ford certainly by looking at the polls i mean the most recent poll now putting the liberals in third place mm-hmm. so I, you know obviously what happened this week with the auditor isn't going to help that it's going to play into that negative narrative regardless of all of the stuff that we just talked about well but the the biggest frustration i feel is is look at whenever this happens we say to to the pcs all right what's your plan uh, they just keep saying, oh, they're, 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 this is all about the liberals. They're, they're fine at, at throwing darts here, but they don't seem to want to be accountable for what they're doing, uh, as opposed to, like you see, the people's guarantee that Patrick Brown had. Like it or not, it was, a, it was a platform that was there for us to be able to look at and say, well, there's an option for us, whether we like it or not. Do you get the sense that anything's going to come out aside from this five-point plan that Doug Ford keeps talking about? I, the sense that I'm getting from the conservatives is that they have no intention whatsoever of releasing a fully costed platform the way that the PCs did, or I'm sorry, the way that the, the NDP have already done, or the way that Mr. Brown did previously. That that they don't really see uh, an upside in that, um, and certainly the poll numbers would support that view. So far, so good, but uh, well, we'll see. I'll just There's a long way to go between now and June 7th. We'll see what happens. Alan, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Greatly appreciated. Great, Bill. Uh, you, are you going to do my taxes tonight, right? Yeah, just send the pages over. I'll see what I can do. 
All right. Appreciate that. <laughs> Take care. We'll talk again soon. Alan Carter, yeah. of course, co-host of Global News at 530 and 6 and Queens Park Bureau Chief. It's a, it's a mess, and, and it's a legitimate point. Yes, yes, the government's numbers are very, very questionable and very concerning. But the other two guys that want to form government here, the NDP and the PCs, haven't seemed to offer anything better. And that's maybe the most frustrating part of everything for these voters, including you and me. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. There is a uh, conflict going on. Well, it's going on in all kinds of parts of the city, but especially uh, now in the east end of the city, uh, over near Centennial Parkway. Residents in four Hamilton East high-rises are planning what they call a rent strike to protest rising rates. Uh, They feel the rising rent could actually force some tenants out onto the street, many of them who have been there for quite some time. Uh, there are a lot of sides to a discussion and to a debate like this, but to, to try to get some perspective on this, uh, I want to bring Aaron Patek onto the program. He is the president of the Hamilton District Apartment Association. Aaron, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Thank you very much. It's good to be on. Well, that, and we can talk a little bit about these uh, people and, and, and the concerns that they're raising, but this is a an ongoing problem right now, with uh, and it's happening in other pockets in the city as well. Uh, and it, it, it seems to boil down to, to landlords that aren't looking after the property but expect to increase rents. Uh, do you, uh, are you finding this is a, a trend that seems to be happening here? Well, I think we've got to recognize we're in the middle of a rental housing crisis, that's been developing for over 30 years. Now, <clears throat> these buildings are known to need a lot of improvements. They've got a bit of a reputation. They've been run down over the years, as has a lot of the Hamilton housing stock. The housing stock has aged, and uh, there hasn't been the revenue to do all the work. When we look at rent increases, the guideline is consumer price index which isn't enough to keep up with the day-to-day running cost. When you talk about all the buildings that need major, major work, all our rental housing stock is 30-odd years old, 30-plus. These buildings need work, and the money is needed, and there's a process, and the government has set up a process. Um, you know, there's a burden of proof on the landlord to say that, you know, this is what I spent, this is what I did. And uh, it goes through the Landlord-Tenant Board. Even if uh, the Landlord-Tenant Board doesn't uh, look at it quite the right way, the Ministry has uh, certain uh, enforcement units that investigate abuses and they'll lay charges if there's abuses. So we've got to realize this is a process that's um, been set up by different governments over different years. It's been changed at times, but it has been ongoing for years, and there's a reason behind it. I understand the tenants' concerns. The tenants' incomes haven't gone up. They haven't kept up with the cost of living. Same as for homeowners. Next month, we're going to see mortgage renewals go up. Are we going to have a mortgage strike? If gas prices go up, are we going to say, no, I want to pay the price that I paid two months ago? I don't want to pay today's price for gas? You know, these people need help income-wise, and a lot of them are on ODSP, Ontario Works. They haven't kept up. And additionally, uh, the federal government has a program that's coming down the pipeline for uh, shelter allowances, but it's two years away. And uh, that should have come in you know, years ago. Uh, provincial government could have done it. So the previous federal governments could have done it. it. There should be more help for people who have an income 
that isn't keeping up with the cost of living. But there are a couple of other things at play here, and, and I, 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 I take you at, at, at full value with what you're saying here. Uh, you know, there's there's a revenue problem here as far as a lot of the landlords and the owners of these properties are concerned. Right. And, and it's a different playing field than, than for instance, public housing, because, I mean, you know, a, a municipality such as Hamilton uh, can simply go cap in hand to the provincial government and say, we need more money for this. And usually the answer is no, but they seem to be opening the tap a little bit. You don't have that luxury. I mean, as as, as t- uh, landlords there, the, I mean, it's a private sector endeavor. They're not going to give you any help in situations like that. So I, I understand that. But I, I think one of the complaints here, as I see it, is the residents are saying, look at, uh, you know, these guys aren't spending the money on the stuff they were supposed to be spending it on. And and I use this as a comparator, uh, Aaron, for instance, if you live in a condo corporation and they say, okay, we're going to put new roofs on everything because the buildings are old and we're in need of that. You, that's an identified idea, an identified cost. And they say, okay, here's how much your share is going to be. What these tenants seem to be saying is, look, at this guy's putting new grass in, but he's not fixing the pipes. He's not getting this done. He's not getting that done. There seems to be a problem with priorities. Yeah, I mean, it's tough to comment on a particular situation because I haven't been in those buildings. I've heard about them. I have heard about the landlord, and I don't think they have problems in other uh, buildings. And I think they're all the way across the province, and I don't think they're known as a bad landlord. But it does take a lot of time to bring a building up to uh, the standard that they want. And yes, maybe they could have made different choices on what to do first and what to do second, but I strongly believe that they're going to be doing uh, a complete cross-section and really change those buildings and improve them to... I think their buildings in other areas, uh, I've seen their buildings in Burlington, they have a good standard of uh, maintenance and uh, good buildings. Are they as old? Are they as old? Um. Maybe not, but I think generally, you know, these people do a reasonable job from what I've seen. I don't have a lot of, uh, you know, first-hand knowledge with them, but it is a process. You can't change a building, turn it around in a few months. It takes a few years to get everything done. So, and, you know, the tenants do have a right to go and make an application to the landlord-tenant board to file, you know, what they're doing basically with a rent strike is illegal. They do have the right to file their complaints. They do have the right to call the city of Hamilton, get inspectors in, have orders issued, get work done. So there are processes, but they're looking to, uh, <coughs> excuse me, sure. cut short the process and uh, you know do something that is illegal, sensational, but uh, to my mind, it's not the right way. That, uh, well, no, I, I understand that, and I understand yeah. about process and about legalities here, all right? I mean, uh, you know, if I don't like the way that the federal government's spending, you know, tax dollars, I don't like this, I, I can't withhold my taxes and say, well, I've refused to pay. I, you know, eventually I'm going to, and that's going to happen. And and I'm, I'm assuming the residents here uh, have the same mindset. They fully understand that. This is to make a statement, and it's to create awareness for this, and they've certainly done that uh, by making this statement and suggesting they're going to withhold the rent. Uh, and, and it is a drastic measure, and ultimately, obviously, you can't do that. I mean, nobody's going to say, okay, you guys don't have to pay. There's going to have to be some retribution as far as that goes. But it is creating, I think, some awareness for some of the concerns. And, and I guess the, the overriding problem here, Aaron, is this this is today's story, but there have been other ones in other parts of the city, and maintenance or lack of maintenance seems to be a, a constant concern here. Yes, I mean, it's, there is a concern, but the city of Hamilton does do proactive inspections of high-rises. They've been doing them for a number of years now, ever since they started talking about the licensing. And there is a way that the city can 
you know, improve these buildings and make sure these things do happen. And um, what about the standards? Let me ask you about that. And I use, I use as a comparator some years ago. When our daughter was going to university in Toronto, we started looking around for uh, for rental places for her somewhere near the campus. I was appalled at the condition of some of the things that were being uh, up on the market there as rental properties. And uh, they said, no, 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 these have all been inspected and they passed. It's, and I'm talking about different addresses in different parts. Uh, and, and it brings into question about just what standards are available right now. And, you know, if somebody doesn't have a, a, a stove that works, I mean, does... You know what? What's 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 the angle there? What happens in situations like that? I mean, if it's your stove in your apartment and it's not working or the fridge isn't working, I mean that's that's a major issue for you. Maybe not for the landlord, but it certainly is for the tenant. The majority of landlords will react to these sort of problems and do the best they can. You have to realize the underlying problem with the entire industry is the shortage of supply. If there were more units out there for rent, that by market forces will definitely improve the conditions of all tenants right across this city, right across the province. I don't disagree. I I don't even, I can't remember the last time anybody built an apartment building in this city. That's the problem. That's the problem. 30 years ago, 30 plus years ago, they did things that stopped construction and there's very little that's come back. So what we've seen, the only rental supply in Toronto, it's been condominiums. In Hamilton, it's been secondary suites and homes that have been converted. Those are not the best form of rental supply. We need purpose-built rental, and it's an urgent problem. And like I say, it's been started so many years ago, and it's been ongoing, and nobody's going down the right track to get more construction. If we have more construction, that would be the number one thing that would solve the problems. But I, listen, and I'll go back to my time on council, which is a way back, you know, back in 16, 17 years ago. But when I would talk to some of these people at the time, we had the shortage then too. It maybe not as dry, as dire as it is now, but it was a problem. And and instead of building new stock, the, the these people, Aaron, came back to us at city council and said, look, it, there's there's no profit in this for it. I mean, we don't want to build any of these things. And they would, they would pressure city councilors in different wards and say, instead of a high rise, which is what we're supposed to do, let us build townhomes in there. Or let us put a condo in there. And, and council would acquiesce. And that's not solving the crisis at all. As a matter of fact, it's making it worse. Well, I think over the last 30 years, every time the crisis has got worse, the government has had a knee-jerk reaction that has actually made the long-term outcome worse. Every time we see a change, something changes, <clears throat> the government reacts to it. And this is what happened last year with... Uh, the fair housing plan, they made changes to the rent control, they made changes to above guideline increases, but they pushed down on landlords when landlords need to be supported and to be providing the housing that they want to provide. We had a seminar a couple of days earlier this week, and there were landlords who are interested in construction. And I'm talking about people who have the money, who have the ability, and who really, really want to get into new construction. But the the various levels of government set up such roadblocks that uh, it's almost impossible to do, and it takes so long. There needs to be an effort by all levels of government to understand that landlords will provide the solution. They will provide more housing, and you don't want to hit them with a stick. You want to help them to do what they want to do. I, here's an idea, and, and I don't know, uh, I know whether any government wants to jump into this, but but you know, for instance, over the years, Aaron, the city and, and other cities, but Hamilton specifically, 
had offered incentives or, or interest-free loans to commercial businesses to uh, to to do improvements to their properties. Uh, a lot of it was facade work, but I mean it worked, and and I, and I, we've seen the benefit of that, I guess, in some of the downtowns and some of the BIAs. What, what about a program like that where somebody could apply and, and get that kind of money up front? I mean, they'd have to pay it back, but I mean, at least it would it would go towards trying to fix some of these properties up. Because I, I see where you're coming from. I mean, if these properties are run down, and many of them are in different parts of the city, I don't know where the, uh, the landlord's going to get the capital to fix any of this stuff. I mean, unless they go and borrow it someplace, and there, therein lies part of the problem. Yeah, the city could definitely look at programs that would help. The other thing that... <clears throat> nobody really wants to talk about is the multi-residential property tax rate. The city is charging tenants in a high-rise a tax rate that is 2.6, 2.7 times higher than the homeowner. And that, if it was equalized, would lead to a rent reduction of about 12%. And that's legislated by the provincial government. If the city equalized taxes, the rent reduction is legislated by the province and in my estimate, it would come out to about 12%. And you and I had that discussion a couple of years ago, because there seemed yeah. to be a mood to, to do that and to equalize it, and it just kind of flittered away. Yeah, it doesn't seem to uh, ever come through. The province has been pushing on it a little bit uh, to cap the multi-residential rate. So hopefully, you know, there'll be movement or maybe more pressure from the province. But to uh, overtax tenants, to charge tenants two and a half times more of pr- property taxes than homeowners. And these are the people who, who earn, you know, one-third of the income of homeowners. And they're subsidizing homeowners' property taxes by paying this very high multi-residential tax rate. So that could be one place where the city could start. And, and again, this is why I said at the beginning of our conversation, this is a multifaceted problem. Uh, it's not a black-and-white issue. There are, there are a lot of variables here uh, on both sides. And, and I... I I don't want people to get the impression that everybody that owns an apartment building is a slum landlord. There are some bad actors, as there are in just about any other business, and and I think the city deals with them. There's some drastic cases. But it sounds to me as if the tenants have a pretty solid case here and some very serious and legitimate concerns uh, that need to be addressed. And and if the landlords or the owners of this building uh, can't do it or can't do it in a timely fashion, uh, I think there has to be a sit-down to say, look, at here's where we are. I don't know if you need a mediator or something like this, but what throws gasoline onto the fire, Aaron, is, is what these people suggesting, look at what's wrong with this building and with this building, and then the, they find out that the landlord is, is, is requesting a 10% rent increase over the next two years, which is way above the stated guidelines. Now, and I understand your point says maybe that 1.8 is not a legitimate number or a fair number, but going from 1.8 to 10 is incredulous. Well, if it's going from 1.8 to uh, 4.8 this year and then... And then four, the, yeah, next the next year, year I, yeah. I, I understand that. I completely understand. And when I go out to buy something and I drive down and I fill up with gas, I see those prices. But, you know, we got to look at the long-term solutions and try and solve those. Now, in these buildings, if there are standards that aren't being met, um, I'm sure the city is aware of them and the city is working now, sometimes when the city sees a lot of problems in a particular building, uh, they might prioritize them with the landlord and sort of work out a schedule. But the city will go in and issue orders, and sometimes it seems like the tenants are suggesting the city isn't doing their job. But in my experience, the city does go out. They do do inspections. They do issue orders. They follow up and reinspect. If the work isn't done, there'll be uh, fees for reinspection. There can be other action. So the city will 
bring these properties up to standard. But they got to realize, and the city realizes, it's not going to happen overnight. No, I understand that, but you, I'm sure if you saw the story in The Spectator today about this uh, this problem that's going on in the East End, uh, they had one tenant there, an 80-year-old, I believe, who's on a fixed income, uh, who's on 700 and some odd dollars for his apartment, and he saw it advertised, a very similar apartment in the building, for about $1,300, which tells me that, well, okay, maybe there's an ulterior motive for the landlord here. I'd like to think that's not the case, but when, when a tenant who's already feeling under pressure sees something like that, they figure they're trying to force me out. Um, I'm sure they feel like that, and, uh, you know, they probably have work in their unit that needs to be done, and they should be getting that work done. They should put in work orders. They should deal with it, and they shouldn't feel pressured. They have a uh, guaranteed, um, you know, tenancy there. They can't be, like, if you live in a house, the owner can say, I want to move in and ask you to move out. But in an apartment building, that's not the case. They can only um, do what the legislation allows, and that is increase based on the approved process. Um, the only other way they can evict you is if you don't pay the rent. I realize they have a they have a cash crunch. Their issue is the income. They need more income. It's not housing costs have been going up. Ownership costs go up. Maintenance costs in apartment buildings go up. Housing costs go up. That money has to come from somewhere. Those people have an income problem. And if they didn't have that income problem, I don't think they would be looking at a rent strike. If their income was going up 6 7% a year, they wouldn't have such an argument with a rent increase. It's just that their income isn't going up and their rent is. And that's, that's because there are hard costs that landlords are facing to maintain and improve, improve their buildings. I, I understand that, and and you're you're not you know incorrect in in your assessment there. But now you're pulling in provincial funding for uh, for you know uh, support programs that some of these people may be getting checks from, and those are woefully inadequate. We understand that, and of course ODSP and on and on it goes. I mean that's that's a whole other conversation, but it is relevant to a point to what's going on here. I mean the 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 the, the income concern that you raise is on both sides. I understand that the landlords and the tenants, uh, both right now are 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 being I guess, burdened by, by the increased cost of living that we're seeing every place. But at the end of the day, uh, the people in the tenant, the, the tenants in these buildings don't want to be sold, hey, I, I just can't afford this anymore. I have to go. I guess, where are they going to find another place to live? That therein lies the problem. Uh, I, I, we got a lot more to talk about and not enough time to do this, but it's always a pleasure to have you on the program to try to, to shed some light on the problems that are going on. Uh, I'd like to think that there can be a sit-down here to try to find some middle ground on this and, and, uh, and move forward uh, with some of the things that maybe we've talked about here. Aaron, thanks so much for the time, as always. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it, and I'd love to be back again and talk about these issues further at uh, another date. You can count on it. Thanks so much, Thank Aaron. You. Aaron Patek, of course, president of the Hamilton District Apartment Association. Uh, I understand that the tenants uh, have some serious concerns here, and, I, and those need to be addressed. And I, the city's got a role to play in this uh, with both sides, uh, because at the end of the, you know the end of this discussion, you just don't want to see people that are making seven hundred bucks a month in 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 support payments having to pay fourteen hundred bucks of rent for a month. That, that's just not feasible. We know that. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on AM nine hundred CHML. Uh, game seven. Uh, first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs, Boston and Toronto. 
that brings back memories. Just that that scenario of what happened about five years ago, of course, when the Leafs had a, a significant lead with just a, about half a period left in Game 7, and uh, the Bruins came roaring back. Now, it didn't happen quite the same way yesterday uh, in Boston for Game 7. Uh, it went back and forth, back and forth. The Leafs went into the third period of the lead. There was an early goal to tie it, and then this happened. World around behind, still trying to keep possession, rubbed out there by Kevin Miller. Right back ahead, it's DeBrusque with a step. DeBrusque trying to get it. DeBrusque is able to get it to the forehand, and that's a nasty goal against Anderson. He's going to want that over again. Uh, and from there on in, another couple of goals from the Bruins went into an empty net, and uh, the Leafs are sent packing once again in a Game 7. Howard Berger, longtime Leaf reporter and blogger, uh, his blog Between the Posts is a must-read, especially the one he did about last night's game. He joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML to talk about this. Howard, how are you this morning? Well, I'm okay, Bill. Better than the hockey club that I covered for many years and, and its fans, but uh, you know, this, this is a different feel, I think, than uh, 2013, where the Leafs, uh, you know, I thought played well throughout that entire series and obviously should have won that series with the 4-1 to lead in the third period. Uh, this may be a better team than that one in the regular season, uh, more stars on the team, perhaps more potential, but uh, this series should not have gone seven games. I still don't know how it went seven games. The Leafs were so awful in Boston, with the exception of the first period of Game 5. Bill, they gave up 22 goals mm-hmm. in the four games in Boston. Yeah, I mean, forget about what happened in Toronto. You give up 22 goals in four games to the team that has home ice advantage. I mean, I, I just don't even know, again, how the series went uh, seven games. Uh, and so... This, well, I think one of the reasons for that... Fan, you, you can't be as devastated about this loss as you were the one in, in 2013 if you're a Leafs fan. Yeah. I, I think part of the problem was Tuka Rask took a holiday halfway through the series and, and, and found his legs again last night, I guess. Uh, which I guess was a contributing factor. But you know what? There are some similarities. I mean, if you go back to that 2013 series, James Reimer stood on his head and, and in that whole series and then just kind of ran out of gas in the last part of the third period, obviously. And I, I think, as you wrote about in your blog today, Howard, the same thing happened with Fred Anderson. I mean, he was, I thought, sensational through this whole thing, and it could have been a lot worse for the Leafs except for some of the exceptional goaltending he gave them. Uh, he just seemed to run out of steam in the third period. You know, he had, um, toward the end of Felix Potvin's career with the, the Maple Leafs, Felix Potvin was the goalie 25 years ago when they, the Leafs had Doug Gilmore and Pat Burns behind the bench and had that uh, couple of pretty good playoff runs in 93 uh, and 94. Yeah, if, they'd, if, they, if they'd called the penalty on Gretzky, they'd have been in the Stanley Cup final. Well, we'll walk one Sorry to bring that one up again. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but Felix Potvin was one of those goalies that, uh, again, toward the end of his career with the Leafs, would make saves that would be on every highlight reel uh, on, on TV uh, for weeks on end. But would let in the you know the the two bouncers from center ice and and it and it, they offset the the bad goals offset the great saves by such a margin so I mean it's you you can't even measure the margin that it is so yes there were times where Frederick Anderson was spectacular in this series he had to be the Bruins were the better team even though the series went seven games but the lousy goals that he let in including two last night completely offset whatever he did uh, in a uh, positive or spectacular way what i wrote about in my blog today and you know it, it's not hindsight because i was writing about it and speaking about it in the last month of the season i think he was tired i think whatever he 
he had in this series was reserve energy. He was overworked by Mike Babcock this season. There was absolutely no reason to use him as often as Babcock did in the final month of the schedule when it was clear that he was tired, and I think that was a major contributing factor. Well, the other uh, element to this, and you wrote about it at the time, Howard, mm-hmm. uh, about and, and in that era, t- uh, it was pretty much a foregone conclusion. The Leafs are going to finish in third place anyway. Yeah, I mean, they had a mathematical chance at one point because the Bruins and, I uh, know, Tampa actually had a bit of a slide, yeah, if you recall, yeah. in the last month of the season. But it, it really would have taken a miracle for the Maple Leafs to go anywhere but um, uh, third place. And even if they'd gotten to second place, so then you, yes, last night's game would have been played at the Air Canada Center instead of uh, the TD uh, Garden in Boston. Uh, maybe it makes a bit of a difference. But it, it just, everybody that watched the Maple Leafs over the last month of the season, pretty sure that the Leafs are going to finish in third. And it's not as if they had some stiff sitting on the bench that, you know, couldn't stop a beach ball if you put him between the pipes. I mean, Curtis McElhenney has had a kind of a checkered career as a, a failed number one goalie in several locations, including Columbus, uh, from which uh, he was traded to the Maple Leafs. But he was very, very good in a backup role this year. And the games toward the end of the season weren't do or die. It wasn't like you had to worry about making the playoffs, as the Leafs have had to worry in just about every year that they do make the playoffs. They usually clinch on the final weekend or the final day. I mean, this was clearly a team that from mid-December on was going to be in the playoffs. And I was writing about it at the time, and I, I just think he was overworked, Freddie Anderson. Now, people can say, well, look at Martin Brodeur. He used to play 77, 78 games a season. But it's an apples and orange situation because Martin Brodeur, with those great New Jersey teams that won three Stanley Cups, he played behind uh, you know, the, the most stringent, the most disciplined defensive system in the expansion era of the National Hockey League. Freddie Anderson was playing behind uh, a team that was allowing the most shots in the NHL. So you can't play him 68 to 70 games. The guy isn't bionic. He's going to get tired. And I thought he was tired in this playoff. I he had nothing left in the third period last night. I'm not blaming it all on him. And I think people are blaming a little bit too much on Jake Gardner. Yeah, he had a bad uh, game last night. But the bottom line is that the goalie had nothing left. And how could he? As as we mentioned, uh, we just played the uh, the call, of course, of the uh, the winning goal. Yeah. Uh, the great Doc Emmerich, who I think is the best play-by-play yeah. hockey guy in the world right now. Uh, and that was Pierre Maguire who chimed in there when the goal and said, Freddie would love to have that one back. Uh, they were shooting in the five hole all through the series, and he was able to make that save. That one went right through, and that obviously turned things around. But the Leafs were pretty much on the skids by that stage of the game. Yeah, and, and, and uh, who knows why the third period evolved the way it did. Would the third period have evolved that way again if Game 7 were in Toronto and not in Boston? You, you do um, uh, claim home ice advantage not to have Games 1 and 2 at home, but in case there is a Game 7. So it's, it's difficult. I, I don't think anyone uh, predicted that Boston was going to outscore the Maple Leafs 4 nothing in the third period. I'm talking about in the second intermission. I put something up on Facebook in the second intermission saying the Leafs are giving up too many shots. Freddie Anderson is going to have to be, uh, you know, unconscious in the third period in order for them to, to hang on. And I think there was some, you know, uh, truth to that, uh, and it didn't happen. And so, you know, again, to me, this was not a seven-game series. The Bruins embarrassed the Maple Leafs in the first two games. 
um, quite frankly, embarrassed them in the third period last night. And the Leafs just gave up too many goals. You cannot give up the number of goals the Maple Leafs did in this series. You know, Boston wasn't exactly airtight defensively either, but you can't give up the number of goals the Leafs did in this series and expect to win uh, uh, a best of seven. Again, I'm, I'm astonished when you look at the at the numbers that this series wasn't a five or six game series at the most. But as you talked about in the blog, let's let's you know do some assessment here, uh, and and you've mentioned this off and on through the year. I mean the the the, the power structure at Toronto Maple Leafs right now with Lou Lamarillo and 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 you know obviously with Mike Babcock going in there, I, this was supposed to be a longer plan. I mean they they exceeded expectations this year. They weren't supposed to be this good this soon. So is the, was this just a bonus for them? Well, I, I don't know why why people, and, and no disrespect, Bill, but I don't know why people um, keep saying that. I mean, the Maple Leafs put themselves in a position where they were able to draft three of the most talented players in the National Hockey League right now in consecutive years. You know, William Nylander, Mitch Warner, and Austin Matthews. Um, you know, you... you bring three players like that onto a, a team um, and, and you can't improve and, and really start scoring goals and playing, uh, you know, a good wide open uh, entertaining style of hockey, then there's something wrong. So that's the easy part of the game. And that's the kind of the, the part of the game that the kids uh, enjoy on the pond, you know, in the middle of winter when they're, uh, you know, eight and nine years old, the more difficult part of the game is the defensive Structure. Exactly, and the, and the Leafs haven't had a defensive structure uh, worth anything really. I mean, since Roger Nielsen, God rest his soul, coached the team forty years ago, and I've said it, Bill, and, and you're going to. Uh, I'll let you finish the sentence until the Leafs somehow find a what? A Borea Salming, a Norris Trophy, <laughs> a Norris Trophy defenseman, defenseman. Yeah, that type of a defenseman. They are not going to end their Stanley Cup drought. The Leafs again. Proved last night and throughout this series, and in fact, all well, season long, when they gave up the most goals in the National Hockey, uh, most shots in the National Hockey League, until they find someone that is capable of dictating tempo during the game. In other words, speeding it up a little bit when the game uh, is too slow, and, and more, must, much more importantly, slowing it down when things look like they're starting to get uh, out of hand until they find that kind of a defenseman that really can command the back end. And, Bill, they don't grow on trees. You know it as well as I do. This club is going nowhere. And it doesn't, uh, it doesn't have to be Bobby Orr. Well, I mean, you, you'd, you Orr. wish it was. There's only one Paul Coffey. Yeah. But, but there's lots of other guys. Scott Stevens. I mean, there's a long list of guys over the course of the Boston years. Boston has one right now. Yep. He's not going to win a Norris Trophy, but Tory Krug has that capability. Yep. Now. He just knows how, you know, he's a good puck carrier. He just knows what to do. Big Chara. He's not what he was seven, eight years ago. He's 41 years of age. But I tell you, if the Leafs had Zdeno Chara, they would have won this series because he still has that commanding presence on the blue line. So the Leafs don't have that type of a player. They've got small defensemen that can skate, that aren't particularly good, Uh, in the defensive zone that aren't particularly aggressive in the vicinity of their own net, or they have guys that, you know, can play defensively, like Ron Hainsey, who are, you know, at the end of their careers. Until the Maple Leafs find, and I keep bringing up the name Drew Doughty, because he is exactly what the Leafs and about 27 other teams need in the (laughs) NHL, until they find that kind of a defenseman, and he may be available, certainly uh, as a free agent if he doesn't re-sign next year. They're going nowhere. They can keep signing all of these forwards and playing the splashy hockey and, and score all these goals, and they can even have a pretty good goalie. 
as in and Freddie Anderson's the best goalie the Leafs have had since Ed Belfour, undoubtedly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Reimer gave them some some good uh, stretches, but uh, you know, since the Cujo Belfour era, Anderson is the best goalie they've had, and we see what happens in a seven-game series. They still give up way too many goals because they don't have that commanding presence on the blue line. Until they somehow draft that or trade for it or find it, and again, it's been four decades since they've had anything that resembled that, this Stanley Cup drought is going to continue. Let me ask you about criticism and and the blame game, and that's inevitable, I guess, when stuff like this happens. Uh, and and I know you're right. They talked about Jake Gardner, but I, the other guy that seemed to be in the crosshairs of an awful lot of Leaf fans was Austin Matthews, which I thought was totally unfair to put that kind of pressure on him. Well, I don't know that it's unfair because uh, Bill, when he does something well, the praise is effusive. I think way over the top. You know, you remember how I used to cover the team? Yeah, I mean, if they did something well, you say it. If they did something poorly, you say it. But, you know, there's such lionizing of these figures now uh, with, with social media in this day and age. So the praise is so effusive. From everyone, the people on TV, the people that write about the team, the, the, the bloggers, the, the, the entire Internet, uh, uh, when this guy does something well or even reasonably well, but we're not allowed to criticize him uh, if he doesn't play well because uh, he's too young and, and it's too early in his career. I don't, I don't, go, with, I don't go for that. And I'm not saying that uh, what he did or did not do in this series is going to be representative of uh, you know, the rest of his career, but no. Come on, this guy is uh, the number one draft pick from two years ago. He set Leaf uh, goal-scoring records for a rookie last year. He would have done the same this year had he not missed, what, 10, 12, 15 games with injury, but he has to be better. And uh, I don't think that's unfair at all to say that. He did not play nearly to the level in this series that he has in his first two regular seasons uh, as a, a Maple Leaf player, or for that matter, in that series last year against Washington that went six games uh, against a team that was near, not nearly as uh, as hard to play against as the Bruins. So, you know, to say the guy's a bum and, you know, it's fake what we've seen the first two years, that would be unfair. To suggest that he just did not play nearly as well and has to be much, much better for the Maple Leafs in the playoffs in years to come, that's not unfair at all. Got about a minute left here. I, I just want to touch on one of the other points in your blog, Howard, uh, and about off-season changes. Uh, you, you're speculating that there's going to be a few guys that were wearing the jersey last night that won't be there uh, when they come to camp in September or August or whenever it's going to be, uh, and a, a few free agents. I mean, the, the kids, I think, are fine. If I can quote the who, the kids are all right. Uh, but, but some of the veterans, uh, I guess, are, are going to be going on to greener pastures someplace else. Well, James Van Riemsdyk had a a terrific year for the Maple Leafs. Um, I thought he played okay in the playoffs, but if they're going to sign the three kids at some point, and they've got Marlowe's contract, which is guaranteed at $6.5 million in 2019-20, and they're going to keep Anderson, and they've got to find... You know, a defenseman that we're talking about is going to cost them $8 million. Well, they can't keep some of these, these guys that are, are whose contracts are running out. So JVR, I think, is gone. Komarov, for, uh, you know, what he contributed, he's gone. Uh, Polak, even though, you know, Babcock loves him. Maybe he'll make him an assistant coach or something. He's <laughs> gone. And, and, you know, I don't know about Tyler Bozak either. I mean, these guys have contributed nicely to the Maple Leafs, but they've got to clear the deck a little bit in order to keep the big three uh, financially. And to, again, add that missing piece. And so it's, it's economics in the NHL right now, and, and it doesn't really mix with sentiment anymore, does it? No, it doesn't. And that's uh, the business of hockey, I guess. Uh, the blog is called Between the Posts. Howard Berger, always a pleasure. Thanks so much, Howard.
Okay, Bill, anytime. Talk again soon. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.